Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Albert Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are exploring how international NGOs are facing the climate crisis and the extent to which their actual internal operations are actually green. You know, to what extent are they aligned with their advocacy for net zero, for a reduction of negative environmental impact and so forth. And to talk about this, to explore this, we have Caroline Anstey, who is the president and CEO of PACT. And PACT is an international development nonprofit that works on the ground in nearly 40 countries to end poverty and marginalization. They've been around for 50 years. And Caroline herself has a distinguished career. She's been with the World Bank for almost 18 years. She left the World Bank as a managing director. Subsequently, she joined UBS as a group managing director and then also has had various other roles, served as a senior advisor to the uh, Inter-American Development Bank and the World Economic Forum and so forth. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever and Visa to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Caroline Anstey, President and Chief Executive Officer of PACT. Caroline, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I guess it'd be great to start by finding out a little bit about PACT. Give us a little bit about uh, a little bit of insight. PACT started life really um, devoted to helping build capacity in communities um, throughout the developing world to help them implement their own their own projects. So capacity at development was very, very key. Since that time, we've expanded very much into healthcare. We're a major implementer of uh, US government programs for HIV AIDS, for um, orphans and vulnerable children and teenage girls. We're also uh, a major implementer of projects in the governance um, area and conflict. And we're building up our sustainability practices in environment and sustainable energy. And we have, a, I think, a quite fascinating specialism, which is in the artisanal mining sector. 30 million women, largely women around the world, work in artisanal mining. And it's an area where they have very rarely acquired a fair price for what they're mining, from gems to, to gold to, um, to other products, um, cobalt. Uh, and there's also an area rife with um, child labor and exploitation. So we've been working in that area and we've really made it very much a speciality in the last 10 years. Great, great. Now, when we were having a chat a little while ago, there were quite a few areas that are of really a great deal of interest to you and to the work that you do. 
But this topic for today was one that you highlighted as, as particular interest to you in terms of these international NGOs and the extent to which they are actually behaving, let's say, in a green manner. Um, what's the state of affairs? How do you, having such exposure to this field, how do you view things right now? I view things that um, it's hard to it's hard to compare across because NGOs come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, I think what's happening in the NGO sector has mirrored a little bit what's happened in the NGO sector for other issues like open development. Uh, it's also mirroring what's happening in the private sector. What do I mean by that? In, in terms of transparency, um, open development, I think we saw 10 years ago the, the multilateral development banks under a lot of pressure to release all their statistics, all their numbers, to become very, very transparent. And they were under pressure from the NGO community and from others. And gradually, we had the open data movement and a lot has changed. And there, there really is much more free-flowing of statistics, information, analyses coming out of the multilateral development banks. The NGOs were much slower to put in place transparency around their operations, around their admin costs, around their split between sort of back-end, front-end, uh, where the money goes and their impact uh, numbers. They were slower because they weren't essentially under pressure to do it. And I think many have caught up now and many are doing it, but it's largely a voluntary thing. I think when we look at the climate sector and particularly the issue of a climate footprint, we see something very, very similar. So um, you've had uh, environmental NGOs which have specialized on climate for a while and may already be taking into account their own operations. But you have a whole swath of other NGOs that are not specifically focused on climate who haven't yet made that leap to say, but we are also part of the problem um, on climate change. We also have a footprint. We're also using diesel cars or diesel generators or whatever it may be, uh, and we're not measuring that. And I think um, you're beginning to see now that the NGO sector, which has been better at advocacy, if I may say so, I'm part of the NGO sector, so I can say We've, we haven't done a good job on this one of practicing what we preach. Uh, we find it easy to urge the private sector, governments, others to, to make a stand on climate change and be accountable and measure and have metrics. We've tended not to do it ourselves. And there's a whole slew of reasons for that. But just as the climate debate went from being a debate for oil and gas industries, but not necessarily the whole of industry. That's changed now. All the private sector are now looking at their, their footprint and their role under the Paris Agreement if they want to attract customers or, or, or workers even um, in the war for talent. And NGOs are going to have to do that too. And so it's not enough to just say, well, some of the environmental NGOs are doing it. All of us, I think, are going to be under pressure from governments, from donors, from our own staff to make progress on this. And, and post-COVID, it throws up a whole slew of issues around 
what is the role of this sector, including travel, which is obviously the one that, to my mind, comes closest to this whole debate, fascinating debate about the decolonization of aid. If we're all if we're all stuck in capitals in um, OECD capital cities, and we're sending people to uh, developing countries the whole time on on airplanes, not only are we increasing our carbon footprint, but we're not. We, it's an old aid model, which is time it became um, really outdated, and there's much more decentralization to the actual. Uh, local community or the country, so a lot, a lot to unpack there. But I think if I had to give a, a grade, I'd say it's a C plus because we haven't really stepped up to the plate on this one. Mm, C plus, not that encouraging. Tell me, what is that? What are those reasons? Those primary reasons, if you could distill some of them that, in your opinion, lead to this space, this sector, being a little bit behind the curve um, in this area? I think first and foremost, um, nobody's forced us to do it. Uh, I'm not sure the private sector would have stepped up and in many ways taken a lead unless they felt their customer base wanted it or their young investors wanted it or they weren't going to be able to attract staff unless they did it. And I don't think the NGO sector has been under such pressure. So that's the first one. The second one is one that applies to everyone, is a perennial debate about what are you measuring? Are you measuring your own operations, your own footprint? Um, or are you measuring the, the footprint of all the investments you do? And I find this particularly fascinating because having worked for a big bank, um, some of the big banks were very were very quick to say we are going to be um, net zero by even by 2025. A couple of them did, and what they meant by that is they're going to look at their own operations, how they heat, their light source, their energy source, their travel source, um, their buildings. Are they LEED certified, etc.? But they didn't say. Um, we're going to look at our portfolio of oil and gas or fossil fuels. We're going to treat that very separately from our own operations. And I think the NGOs have gone through something similar. Do you say this is just about our immediate footprint or is it about the footprint of all the projects we implement for others? And if it's the second, uh, it's a much bigger deal. And I think that will come but I don't think people are there yet. And, and thirdly, I think the reason is it's not easy stuff. It's complicated. It involves getting baseline data, doing a materiality um, index survey, um, getting a real sense of where you are on that spectrum of, um, of a footprint. And then what do you do about it? In a, in a world where the controversy is very great about carbon offsets, do you actually reduce your travel and stop traveling quite radically? Or um, are you going to purchase offsets? And so there are all these um, semi-ethical debates going on. And I think the result is that um, without the pressure to do it, a lot of NGOs haven't yet done it. And I think that that time will come because I think when, when I look at the 
climate debate, I see a huge amount of discussion in obviously the UN agencies, huge amount of discussion now within the private sector, some greenwashing, some genuine, huge amount of discussion now amongst governments. The missing, missing fourth sector, if you like, amongst those has been the NGO sector. And I think that citizens are going to look increasingly to NGOs to play a, um, a consumer watchdog role and to say, we demand metrics that can be applied across, or we demand um, much more transparency from the private sector or from government. If, if NGOs aren't doing that, then, then a lot of lobbying effort and potential is wasted. But I think it's very hard for NGOs to do that unless they've put their own house in order. So I think it's coming. Um, the interesting thing to me is, will it come in a way that makes the NGO sector somewhat defensive and scurrying along to catch up? Or will we get ahead of it? And one interesting recent development is that the um, the Foreign and, and um, Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO, the successor to DFID, has now just put out a mandate saying they want to know the carbon footprint of people who, of organizations that are implementing their projects. And that's just the beginning that it, it's a fairly circumscribed demand at the moment, but it will grow. And I think everybody, all, all donors, and many of us are implementing uh, donor-funded uh, programs and projects. Uh, donors will want to see, just as the, 10 years ago they demanded to see results, they're going to demand to see the footprint. And then I think it will be much better if we're not just scrabbling to, to catch up. There's so many questions I could, I could follow up from this one. Uh, one was about the private sector and whether you would say the private sector nowadays is actually taking the lead on this agenda. Uh, but let's put that as a placeholder for one second and let me ask you something else, which is also front and center of my mind. And that is, you touched on possible ethical or semi-ethical debates. And I have on this show itself had conversations with people who are all fully aligned on where they want to go for the climate agenda, but how they get there, quite different, including people running multi-billion dollar endowments who will say, yes, I absolutely want the climate agenda to succeed and we want to tackle this right now, but divesting from fossil fuels radically today, uh, 100%, would be a problem. And, and not just a problem, would be something that we do not want to do, even though within, within our own organization there isn't consensus on that. Let me put that on your, on your side of the court for a second. And what's your take on that? I think the, um, I think the divestment debate can go either way. But I think it's, it's really related to this question of, do you, do you recognize that change is a continuum and you have to start somewhere and you make progress along it? Or are you so purist that you say, I'm not going to go A, B, C, D, and E. I want to go straight to Z. And if a company or an organization isn't prepared to do that, I'm not going to support it. Or the third option is, do you really believe that it requires a shock to the system like divestment to make things happen. My own sense is that the divestment debate has not proved that this is the single intervention that is going to turn things around. 
And I think um, I, I am a great believer in the continuum. What does that mean? Um, we're working, as I said, with, with mining. We look at mining, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a challenging uh, country, a challenging region to get mining right and to do it in a way that is transparent and uh, the product can be traced and certified and there are no human rights abuses. Um, some NGOs have chosen to completely get out of these tough sectors because they don't think it serves any purpose to be working with oil and gas or mining com companies or extractives or even the organizations that are using cobalt for batteries or whatever it may be. I take a different view and we take a different view at PACT, which is you need to, you need to help a company make that transition. Now, you can't be naive and uh, you have to set metrics and you have to have transparency and you have to, to trust and verify that the progress is actually happening. But um, I don't think you can just abandon and say these tough industries, we're not ready to talk to them until they're 100% green. And it's the same with countries. If you look at the whole intergovernmental process around the UN uh, and coming up for COP26, it's about also bringing laggard countries, not necessarily abandoning them. So um, I think the, the, I wouldn't put myself on the side of the purists, but I also think some of that issue around divestment has to be looked at in terms of what is the bang for the policy change. If it's going to have a really big bang and an impact by the fact of doing it, by the message it sent. Uh, for example, I believe it was now about five or six years ago that Rockefeller Fund Brothers, the Fund Brothers, not the foundation, decided to divest. And that was a big deal when the announcement came out. Did it really make a big difference? I don't think so, um, financially or economically or who it put pressure on. But the very fact that Rockefeller Fund Brothers was doing it created a, a little bit of a ripple effect. So it's not, it's not a black and white um, uh, issue, I think. It has to be calibrated against what is the, what is the win but also, who are you going to alienate by 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 move by basically saying it's all or nothing? Mm -hmm. And would you say, going back to the previous question, that the private sector today is leading on that ESG agenda? And on this show itself, I've had uh, Bob Moritz from PwC, Carmine DiCibio from EY, doing a lot of work on on standards for non financial accounting going net zero. I think EY is going carbon negative in 2021 or hoping to um, and trying to put a lot of um, to leverage, you know, the supply chains and their customers and all of that. What's what's your take on the private sector today? I think the private sector has been leading in the last few years. And I think part of that is because you, you had an absent U.S. government as well. So the government sector looked like it was um, laggardly. And in some cases it was. And you had the private sector driving uh, the ESG agenda. Um, was some of it greenwashing? Certainly. Was some of it impact washing around impact investing or SDG washing? Certainly. 
But I think the effort to come up with joint metrics that would be meaningful was, was real. Why did the private sector move in this direction? I think it was very, uh, they read the tea leaves and they saw that's why, that's where customers, young people, consumers are going to be moving and they're going to care about these things. And I do think that uh, they've moved considerably. I would say a combination of the private sector with the central banks. I mean, the, the role of Mark Carney and the Bank of England uh, when he headed that up on climate disclosure, I think was very pivotal. So you had some slightly unusual players, but I would also go back to what I said earlier is for a lot of the private sector who are saying, yes, we can be net zero in 2021 or net negative zero. And they're, they're really looking very narrowly at their own operations. So you, you, you can get these statements of intent, but then look at how many investments they're holding around oil and gas or fossil fuels. And it's a different story. So it's, it's now, does that mean we should discount it? No, but we should, we should see it for what it is, which is, I think, a first step. Mm -hmm. Now you've provided us with a really colorful context on, of what's going on right now. What about the CEO, the executive director, the board member who's listening to this and possibly thinking to themselves, hmm, I might be one of those organizations that isn't on the ball when it comes to climate. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your advice there? Where should they start to get things on track? I think that they should start by looking at their own operations. I think they're going to need help at the beginning from, from an organization that will come in and benchmark. Uh, there are many of them around now, um, from sort of Rolls Royces out there to little Fiat 500s. Um, and once you get a benchmark, it's fairly easy for you to update it yourself. But you need third-party verification. And then I think you have to decide, how are you going to go about this? What, what do you actually care about? Do you care about single-use plastics? Do you care about um, the carbon footprint through travel? Do you care about your fleet of cars, your, um, how you power your offices overseas? And, um, and then see what, what is important to your own staff, because they're going to pay a really key role in this. So I think there are various steps you can take and build up. And um, I, think, uh, I think NGOs are going to do it now, because along with that ruling by FCDO, you're going to see other donors say, we want to put our money with those implementing organizations that can claim to have committed to net zero or have a pathway towards net zero or are uh, disclosing their their footprint metrics. And I think that will become a competitive advantage for the NGOs that do it. And we tend to think of nonprofits as somehow being above the money, but money is a big driver for, for nonprofits, obviously. And they are to an extent in, in competition with each other to, to raise whether it's charitable uh, money or grant money or even private sector um, investment. And now you see so many partnerships between NGOs and the private sector. The private sector is also going to begin to say, 
we want this NGO that we're partnering with to be um, like Caesar's wife, beyond reproach. Mm. What are you seeing in your immediate environment? So the stakeholders, the people you're engaging with, the organizations you're interacting with, uh, are your views shared by most? And and are people in front of, in the middle of, or, or behind the curve uh, in this area? I would say um, environment, specifically environmental NGOs, climate change NGOs, are ahead of the curve. Um, others, regular development NGOs or, or contractors or implementers of government projects are behind. And I think it's going to take an understanding and also more pressure from donors to say, we want to see this development. Because from a donor point of view, and I think FCDO has recognized this, if they're, if they're passing on taxpayer money, they want to make sure that all along their value chain or their supply chain, so to speak, uh, there are organizations which are sort of um, in contradiction to their own values. So just as businesses have had to kind of secure the supply chain to make sure at no point are local interests being um, uh, exploited, it's going to be the same for donors. They're going to have to check that those who are implementing, whether it's a charitable organization or a grant-based organization or a private-public partnership, those the implementers also adhere to the same values. Mm -hmm. And without getting too technical, what are the sort of tick boxes that we, we, we got to go through that a funder, whether it's a bilateral funder or a high net worth philanthropist or what have you, what are those key things? Because obviously... Uh, things can also get a little bit complicated, right? Yes. If you're looking at scope one, scope two, scope yes. three emissions, and at, at what, what are the key things that you think those funders are looking at right now? I think they're looking at fairly simple, rudimentary things. Uh, do you have a commitment to, to net zero? What year have you chosen? And do you have a plan? And is it public of how you're going to get there? What does this mean for your own travel footprint? your own fuel footprint, your own um, waste footprint, and um, how you're running your offices. Uh, we, for example, have, uh, we have 20 physical offices around the world. We're operating in 40 countries. Um, are some of those moving to solar? Yes, but not all of them. But it presents dilemmas because we can We can sometimes have an office just for five or six years, the duration of a, of a project. So it, it, it's a lot of um, perhaps investment in infrastructure in the first instance. So then there's a possibility of can you partner with the private sector? I know that there are private sector organizations out there which would love the idea of coming in and supporting an NGO to, to convert to solar 20 offices Um, around the world in developing countries. So it's a question of, of creating those partnerships. But I don't think that they're, I, I don't think that their donors are asking for anything really sophisticated. They're basically doing their own due diligence. And NGOs are now at the beginning of this discussion. And I think coming out of COVID as well, there's added, there's added now um, incentive on travel. To, um, to get things right, 
which means to do much more locally and not to be having people do a lot of international transatlantic travel, particularly the old model of expats going back and forward. This is a good thing if it helps us all decentralize and localize our operations as well. Is that something that's happening at PACT? I mean, you operate in 40 countries. I don't know how many offices exactly, but uh, what's the travel consideration for you, especially going post-pandemic? Yeah, we're, we're looking to cut travel quite radically because like many organizations in the last year and a half, we actually delivered our programs without traveling or without international travel, some regional travel. But most of our, uh, we, are, we operate in 40 countries. Most of those countries everybody was working from home. So this has led to a whole new way of thinking about how do we deliver development? When do people have to go out from um, the, the corporate office, if you like, which is DC? And where can, it be, where can we build up expertise locally so we don't have to do that? And, and we've already looking at a whole slew of new ways of um, carving out people's time. Most people say they could do their work without traveling, but when they stay in the office, they're overwhelmed with other, other tasks. So can we create a kind of category for, I'm actually in the field, even though I'm not in the field. <laughs> mm -hmm. So don't bother me. Let me spend the entire week working on this project. And, and, and minimizing trips and making sure you do multi-country trips when you go. I think this is not this is an area where all the peer organizations that I know are now looking at this. Great. How did you get into all of this? So you've had a distinguished career. Give us, I'd love to learn a little bit about your journey. I I was always fascinated by public policy as it relates to um, development, international relations. So I, I started my career really at the BBC as a journalist running a running a current affairs program. And then I morphed into international development and I love the World Bank. But in the World Bank, you're, you're, you're removed. You're not completely removed because I was a country director and country directors also are decentralized now. But you're not implementing every detail of the project. And then I worked for UBS and my task was to bring sustainability to, to UBS something I started in 2014 and has just taken off since then. It's quite incredible. Um, but I never really worked on projects per se. And the PACT opportunity came along. And this is very project specific. We're small. We have to be very agile because we're implementing contracts for five years and then moving somewhere else to implement other ones have an incredible group of young, very talented people. And it, it's an enormous contrast to both UBS and the World Bank, which are both very big, uh, multi-headed hydra in a way. And now I'm working with a fabulous organization which gets great results on the ground, but you can put your arms around those results and really see what they are and learn from each other learn projects, learn from each other. And I think it's a very exciting sector to, to see to what extent development is really making a difference. And at PACT, we're committed to 
not just kind of bringing in donor ideas and having donor-driven development. We're very committed to elevating the voice of local communities and being evidence-driven. And that's also very exciting. So I'm loving it. I'm having a ball. That's great. Were there any misconceptions that you had before you actually joined PAC that once you get a little bit closer up, you're like, ah, so that's how it is? Well, my biggest misconception would be that I would spend the last 18 months traveling, but I actually joined PAC two days after the mandatory work from home. So I've been working with my colleagues all from our kitchens or our living rooms. Um, I think I think there are no real misconceptions except that the practical difficulties of delivering development um, in, a, in COVID, in an area where you can't go into local communities to talk about um, HIV AIDS prevention, in communities where they basically are not getting uh, clean water or soap. And we had to pivot quite a lot of our operations to focus on, on COVID and COVID, um, both education and prevention, uh, and then some support to vaccines. So I think that's been the biggest, the biggest um, change is just the minutia that come up every day uh, when you're really implementing projects and working with others to implement projects. Mm. Now, I always like to ask my guests for a key takeaway before we wrap up the episode. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think the one thing I'd like people to keep in mind is if we're moving to a world, my ideal world, where you know the life journey of what you wear, you know the life journey of what you drive, where, where was the battery produced? How is it produced? You know the life journey of what you invested in. Has this gone to fossil fuels? Has it gone to munitions? Has it gone to weapons? If, you, if that's the world we want, where we can make as consumers and citizens educated choices, then NGOs have to play a role in making sure there is that transparency. And citizens, all those out there who may be watching, who support NGOs or support charities have to insist themselves that um, the nonprofit sector practices what it preaches. Because if we're going to be an assist to making sure consumers get that kind of transparent information they need, we have to, uh, we can't be speaking with forked tongue. So go out there, influence your charity, influence your NGO, influence your development organization and tell them you demand information about climate footprints and uh, and you want it now <laughs> wonderful caroline on that note thank you so very much for joining us today on the do one better podcast it's been an absolute pleasure thank you alberto perfect and that's a wrap thanks very much for tuning in you've been listening to caroline anstey president and ceo of pact for episode notes on today's conversation, please visit our website at liji.org, that's L-I-D-J-I dot org, where you will also find information on more than 100 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with your friends and family and colleagues, and I'll see you next week.